And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You're listening to The Leaf Report with Canadian press national hockey writer Jonas Siegel and The Athletic TO's James Myrtle. Leaf Report Podcast brought to you by Babsocks, Babsocks.ca. It is the playoff edition of the Leaf Report Podcast. We, we, Bab, yeah, James has his purple ones on. I like the purple ones. So we couldn't record after game two because it went to double OT and it was a long night. Uh, but we're doing this ahead of game four on Wednesday night. Uh, Leafs up 2-1 in the series. I don't know that we expected to be at this point. I had Caps in six, I will say Me that. Me too. I, I had the Leafs winning two games. I wish I said Caps in seven. I wish I did. It still might be. Yeah. Actually, i got to book my hotel for game seven. Ooh. Already <laughs> getting to that point. Well, I, I guess... Some guys already have We booked. I think you and I both agreed going into the series that um, there was a chance that because of Toronto's talent and like that nothing to lose mentality that they could make things interesting but are you surprised that it's gone as it has so far at all a little bit i mean the most surprising thing we've seen out of everything was that third period in game three like that was that was complete domination well they so just before you keep going they held washington without a shot for the first 13 minutes and i think 25 seconds the Caps finished the period with three shots on goal. The shot attempts were 28-9 to nine for the Leafs in in 20 minutes of the most important game of Washington's season to date. Washington had, what, 118 points this season, won the President's Trophy. I think I, I wrote uh, a piece before the series started about five, or I think it was six, six ways the Leafs might be able to beat Washington in the series. five. No, I, th- I think I had some extras, so I oh. went to say. But anyway, it doesn't matter. And people were like, oh, you're a homer and whatever, whatever. But I just, 
I think there was a greater chance the Leafs could win this series than people were letting on. I think there was always a 35 to 40% chance. Some of it had to do with Washington not executing at the level that they can. And I think we saw some of that in Game 3. I think we saw them fold a little bit under the pressure. But some of this is just the Leafs are, you know, I, the piece I want to, I, I, I intend to write today is I think we've underrated the Leafs. I think we we underestimated them. And even, like, you and I have been watching them all year, and I think mm-hmm. we underestimated them probably a little bit. But did we? Like, I mean, we both thought that it might go six games. We both thought that there was a chance that the Leafs could kind of make it interesting just because they did have talent. Like, I don't know that we underrated them. Like, you just look at Washington. They won 55 games. You look yeah. at their lineup. Like, look at their defense. On their third pair, they have the guy who finished fourth in the league in scoring yeah. among defensemen. Like, they're a really good team. They have the Vesna Trophy winner maybe two times over. Like, he probably won't win this year, but Braden Holpe won last year. He's maybe, been excellent this year. Like, I don't... Maybe we overrated them. Maybe I talked to I talked to. Do you know the the blog? Uh, maybe we've talked about it. Yeah, Japers Rink. The mm-hmm. it's fantastic. When I was at SB Nation almost ten years ago, they were one of the first sites that we paid to bring under SB Nation's wing, and they're still there. And it's it is. I think it is probably the best team blog that there is for any team. So if people are interested in the Capitals, follow Japers Rink on Twitter and check them out. But I talked to them before the series started when I was doing my preview, and I said. I was just curious what weaknesses they might have and what matchup problems the Leafs might present. And the thing that John, who runs that site and has run it for a long time, told me is that um, basically the Capitals struggle with fast teams. Their D is not super quick. They are a very big, heavy, grinding team. Mm -hmm. And what some people in Washington now who follow the team really closely are saying is that the Leafs might have been the worst matchup for them possible in the Eastern Conference just because... They might not be able to handle some of the speed and some of what the Leafs can throw at them. Well, what was like most apparent in Game Three was just how fast that, that the Matthews line looked. Like it didn't look like they could keep up, no matter which matchup it was. And that was, line has been awesome. That been line good. has been. Yeah, Nylander, they're just too fast. Nylander was seventy nine percent possession in Game Three. Yeah, like it's just. It's amazing. I think the shot attempts for him were like twenty four to five or something. Yeah, something insane like that. Yeah, yeah, like and and you go to other lines. Like I don't think the Marner line has been that good so far. But Marner hasn't been good at all. Marner has. He is last among all the forwards in possession. Yeah, he hasn't been great. But like that's that could be their third line. And when you have Kadri, Komarov, and Bryant Brown performing like they have so far like you've got different threats up and down the lineup so i think that the matthews line has been outstanding i think the cadre line has been outstanding in this series i think connor brown nobody's talking about how well he's played leo sure. komarov has played well cadre has been cadre i think we've talked about him every week on the podcast for a couple of months cadre has been one of their best three players for months now he's been i just he's really got a fire to him that is it's he's perfect for a playoff series yeah because like he plays every shift hard, he's physical, he's not scared, he has skill, yeah. he can score, he can make plays. Like he was just, like how much bigger is Brooks Orpik than Nazem Kadri? Because he was running over Orpik a, a lot, lot bigger. Yeah, like Kadri has put on a lot of strength, and he's a lot bigger than when he came into the league. I think they list him at six feet two hundred or something. He's, there's yeah. no way there's no way he's that big, but I don't know. And he's kind of got that weird. I was watching him last night. He's got that weird skating stride where he's kind of like super upright a little bit yeah. and. Like, his balance isn't that good, and I think that's part of why he drew so many penalties early in his career. But he works so hard, you know, mm-hmm. and 
the knocks on Kadri, I think a lot of them were just misguided. And I, I think him and Gardner were kind of in the same boat where when the team was struggling, those guys were always really good possession players. They always showed up well in big games. They played mm-hmm. well in that series in 2013 against the Bruins. And um, it's it's good. It's good to see those guys get their due. I don't know that I would have ever thought Kadri would be this good of a shutdown player. It's it's really interesting to see him outplay Nick Backstrom in a series. Like I wouldn't have predicted that coming. Well, Trotz in. has been working hard to kind of get his top line away from Kadri. Right. And like he couldn't on, on game three. He could not. Well, it was Ovechkin, over 80%. And Ovechkin only played 12 minutes and 40 seconds at even strength. Right. Although, who knows what the ice time actually is. Apparently, it's not well, entirely accurate. But I whatever. think it's within like a minute most it's, of the time. It's pretty close. And the point is that's under Ovechkin's season average. But like Ovechkin going to, hasn't really impressed me. He's kind of just like a rocket launcher. That he's they a give the power puck. play player now. Yeah. Like if you look at his stats from the regular season... He only had, I think, sixteen power or sixteen even strength goals, which was the lowest of his career. For context, Matthews led the league, I believe, with thirty-two. So we think of Ovechkin as the greatest goal scorer, maybe ever, and easily during our lifetime. He he is one of the top five ever, I think. So he's not the same guy anymore. Like he's not that battering ram he used to be. He's really good on a power play because his shot is his shot. Yeah. But I guess what what I wanted to mention is almost thirty-two. Yeah, and that's what happens. But you mentioned like Don't with Kadri, yeah. Um, like we were talking last week about Riley and going against top lines. I think what we're seeing with Kadri is like this is what success in that role is. He's not just like floating. Like he's not just trying to, to stay above water. They're actually like succeeding, like in outplaying the line that they're going against. You know what I mean? I think like, all three of those guys, like they just they push the pace so hard. Like, they're just... Babcock's got these guys working really, really hard. I, Morgan Riley told me before the game, game three, that Babcock's speech to them about how you never know what opportunities you're going to get. My favorite line that Babcock has had, I think, the whole year was that line about... Um, oh, damn, I can't, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it. I wish I could remember. What was it about? It, it was He was talking about how something, something doesn't come in sport like basically tomorrow doesn't always come in sport you can't rely on your next chance you have to take advantage of the chance you get and if it was just a really powerful speech and i could just picture him giving that to the young players so i talked to morgan riley about it and he said yeah like babcock came in and said to us we have a chance here we can beat these guys be the best us we can be this has happened before babcock has been the coach of a team that's done it before when he came for his first year with the ducks they did it and they went all the way I'm sure he's saying to them, "Is we can do this." I don't think they're, even if they do somehow get by Washington, that they're going on, they're going to deep. But I guess, but 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 but, 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 but Babcock's but. just going to say, "You never know." But that, but this is my point. Look at like Pittsburgh in, I guess, '08 when they go to the Cup final against Detroit, lose. Crosby is like 20 at that point. You look at Chicago when they go to the Cup final for the first time. Taves is like 20. Kane's probably right around the same. Like sometimes like it, it's not crazy that teams with a Matthews, a Marner, a Nylander, they're just well, good. Like their age actually, doesn't matter. There's actually – look at Getzlaff and Perry played half the right. year in the minors and then they won the cup in 07. And that line was probably better than the first line that the Ducks had that year. So, right. Like so, 
It's actually more common that you've got guys on entry level deals making it to the final and winning cups. Stahl with and and, and Cam Ward with Carolina. There's a mm-hmm. whole bunch of Malkin with Pittsburgh. There's a whole bunch of examples of that. Part of it is that we overrate experience. Part we of, overrate part, experience. Part of it is that players peak around 22 or 23 years old. You and which I, is part of why you're overrating experience. You and I have some like debates on that because I think. I think statistically, obviously, that's true. I can't dispute facts, but I do think well, there's, as you there's get older, you variance. become a better player. Like you learn more about lots of guys. Play. Don't though. Yeah, that's. Probably I, I think you're probably thinking of like the outlier guys, like like the Kadri's probably an outlier where he's gotten better. But Kadri was pretty good all the way along. He just didn't give as much. Yeah, ice but you time wouldn't and, you wouldn't dispute that Kadri is a better player now than he was in 2013. Right, and what what is he 26? Yeah, and statistically, he was. I don't know. He's so pretty he's good still this in year. that peak area. Like when we say he peaks at twenty three, twenty four, like twenty five, twenty six, they're still right there. Yeah. It's not like we're saying he's declining at twenty six. But it's funny. You and I both wrote stories before this, before the series, and, and actually talked about it on the podcast. Like, what does experience mean in a playoff series? Like, does it mean anything? And the one thing, like from talking to some of the Capitals and, and even Barry Trotz, they think it's like completely just a talking point. Like that, it it doesn't matter. Like what Matt Niskanen was saying. The other day is like it's just hockey. Like everything is the same. Like the stakes are just a little bit higher. There's a little bit less space. It's more physical. But at the end of the day, it's just hockey. And good hockey players are good hockey players. Like do you know what I mean? Like maybe yeah. maybe we well, we think like there's yeah. all these times on the bench when guys are like, oh, what am I going to do? And maybe that doesn't. I think one thing that's happening too is that young players are coming into the NHL better prepared to make an impact in the NHL than ever before. That these guys they're basically pr- playing pro level hockey. A lot of them before they get here. Yeah. Like, if you've played... Connor Brown's played, what, three years in the AHL? Two or three? Even guys that, that played really high-level hockey in junior, or Matthews played in Switzerland, or Nylander played... I mean, these guys have played in the World Cup. They've played in the World Championships. They've played... Like, they have played high-pressure, hard hockey. Bozak said that after Game 3, that these guys have all been the best player on their team in really big moments. Like... They're just not intimidated by this anymore. Okay. And the, the level of training that guys are going through now. And I look at the skill set that Matthews and Nylander and Marner, even guys like Brown. Like Brown's got a defensive IQ that is so high for how young he is. There's a, It's not the way it used to be. It's almost like in hockey there's all these truisms that are from 20 years ago yeah. that we have a hard time getting past. Hockey has professionalized to the point where there are guys that are 17 and 18 years old that are learning how to back check. And you look at how much money some of the coaches are making now in junior hockey and, mm-hmm. and college hockey. And, you know, Zach Hyman learned how to play. He basically spent a four-year apprenticeship under Red Berenson learning how to be a good defensive forward and a good forechecker and a good penalty killer. These guys are coming into the AHL with just different skills than they had 10 or 15 years ago. Okay, well, you mentioned that clip by Bozak. I'm going to hijack the Babsocks Babcock quote of the week. Babsocks Bozak quote of the week? It's now Bozak's quote of the week. So this well, is... We can do both. Yeah, I guess we can do both. Okay, let's do... This is the first of two. Here's Tyler Bozak uh, basically talking about exactly what James said with some of the young players and how they perform so far. I mean, all those guys have probably had a ton of pressure on them their whole lives. They've probably always been uh, the best player and, and the best player on their teams and have always, you know, had the pressure to, to play well and... You know, they're used to it, so um, it, it doesn't phase them one bit, and you can see that when they're out there playing. Okay, so he's right. Like, you go down the list, like, even Austin Matthews, who hasn't actually played in team formats quite like the NHL before, 
He was in the, the Swiss League playoffs last year. He was on the World Cup. He was the World Championships. The Swiss League playoffs didn't go very well, though. No, they got swept. <laughs> but, like, Mitch Marner played in the Mem Cup. I think it was the MVP. Uh, William Nylander has played in World Championships, I think. World Juniors, yeah, for sure. Playoffs, AHL playoffs. He didn't actually have a great AHL no, playoffs. Not. But the point is, like, maybe some of that stuff doesn't matter. So, You know who did have a good AHL playoffs was Kasperi Kapanen. He had some really big moments for... The Marlies. Yeah, that's interesting. And he's had a really big year. Actually, you wrote a really good story about that. Maybe kind of detail briefly like his kind of rise through the organization. Because at the time of that trade, uh, the Phil Kessel trade, people looked at Kapanen and said, like, he's an okay prospect, former first-round pick. But 22nd overall. I mean, I kind of thought he was going to be a so-so, kind of like a third-line guy. And he's he's still very, very points. He might be. But the Leafs looked at kind of... The Leafs looked at his component parts, and they're trying really to turn him into something he wasn't. They're trying to turn him into a penalty killer. They look at how well he skates. They look at how he's pretty smart. He's becoming a different player. Like that's This is development, what we're seeing with Kasperi Kapanen. He, he had this really high skill set that was kind of raw, yeah. and he had played because of where his dad uh, was playing in the NHL. He had played growing up in—I've talked to him about this before. He had played in Philly, and he was born in— either Carolina or Hartford, and he kind of went all over the place. Then he was over in Finland, and he was probably almost too good for that league over there at certain points. Kapanen didn't get that like high-level instruction, and he started getting it with Sheldon Keefe and the Marlies, and I think that's why we've seen him. He's That's one thing that, that, that we, we talked about. Uh, the Kadri line's been really good, and the Matthews line's been really good. Bozak line, not so good. Um, the fourth line has been so much better. You add Boyle and Kapanen to it, and you subtract Soshnikov and Ben Smith. It's a different, a whole different skill set you're getting from those guys. They weren't great in the the first. They weren't great in the first game. Obviously, better in the second. Okay in the third. But you mentioned like Kapanen, the development thing, killing penalties, like having him kill penalties in the AHL, and suddenly he can come into the NHL and just kill penalties. I don't know. Like something as small as that seems like it matters. It does matter because the Leafs did not have a lot of very good penalty killers. The the one stat that I found uh, after Game 2 that I liked the best is that Brian Boyle, for some reason, in the dressing room after, was really excited that Kapanen won the faceoff. So I looked it up, and it was the first faceoff Kapanen had ever taken in the NHL. Double overtime, and he well, wins it, and it starts that shift where they score the winning goal. How about that pass? Yeah, I know. I don't know how he did that. I didn't know he could do that. Yeah, he doesn't even look. Yeah, I guess that's, that's, the, that's like, like the Matthews he, play. If he looked, then yeah. I would. You know what? I think it. I think Boyle is closer to a third line center than a fourth line center. I think he's like a really good fourth line center. He's got sort of how he's he was got, used before. Yeah, he's got offensive ability that, and he's another like. There's a perfect example of you talk about peaking at 23. Brian Boyle has worked really hard to get better and better. So we're just finding more and more examples of guys who didn't peak at 23. Okay, but you know, you know, <laughs> I know what you're it's saying. Like yeah, yeah, the, yeah, for sure. In the, in the aggregate, like if you well, look at Crosby or Gretzky or those guys' career, they were the best when they were the young, when they sure. were young. Yeah, that's for sure. Statistically, they were the best. Like Crosby's best year, I think, was his second year. He had 120 points. Right. Anyway, um, another guy who's a, who you mentioned when we were chatting has gotten better in time is Leo Komarov. Um, I just wrote him wrote about him on today's Tuesday Tuesday. Um, I don't he's know what play, day it is either. I know, like he's kind of so he's kind of playing like this super pest. It's either a game day or a flight day, right basically. Now. 
But so Komarov is like playing this this pest role against Ovechkin. He and Ovechkin have like these really good battles. Um, but I think we we should give credit where credit's due. They signed him in 2014. Dave Nonis and his staff. Four years, eleven point eight million. And we at probably the time, questioned it on we the did. podcast. We yeah. absolutely did. We said that, like that doesn't make sense. Well, because the one year he played for the Leafs, that first year, he was not very effective. And as part of it was that was a crappy team, and he was playing with a lot of bad players. And but you could see what he kind of was. Yeah, I don't know if we could see what he was. Like, I think we could. Like he was a pest. He wasn't, he wasn't what he is right good. now. Sure. I the thing that the uh, the analytics guys point out. And I don't even know which one to credit with it, but they 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 say that Leo Komarov is elite defensively, that he is very very effective defensively, that he's hard to play against. He's he's a good left winger, and hmm. his offensive skills are obviously. I know last year he had that crazy first half of the season and went to the All Star game and everything, but his offensive skills aren't elite, but defensively he makes up for it and. So now you've got three players with that hockey IQ that I talked like Brown, Komarov, and Kadri, and that's what's making that such an effective line. Well, and Babcock mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. He said a guy like Komarov is really good on a really good team and not so good on a bad team. And I think it's like it's a really well, he can't do really it on his point. own. He can't. right, he needs good players. He can't do to it on his own. But, but when you're but when you're on a good team and you're a supporting player right. in, in a series like this. I think they Jack, just need him Jack to play Hyman's a specific the same role. way, probably, yeah. and it's the same with guys like Dan Winnick, and you know those are the kind of pieces exactly that the same. like Dan Winnick. I think is a really good third, fourth line guy. Yeah. I mean, he's getting older now, but the Leafs brought him in and they had him on their second line because they just didn't have an. And so people got really frustrated with Dan Winnick because he wasn't converting on his chances, or whatever. And it's like that's not what he is. Well, and that we've said we said that all along with some of those Kessel and Phaneuf teams. That when you don't properly slot guys, they're not going to be as good. Like they're just not that good. Like if Tyler Bozak is your third center, you're a little you're in a better position oh. than if he's your first center. It's it's crystal clear that that Bozak is very good on the power play. He shouldn't be on the penalty kill, and he's not on this team. And he That's should be really at even strength. Point. At even strength, he should be a third line center. And yeah. in that situation, he looks really good. Because well, he doesn't always look really good. I mean, he hasn't been good in this series other than scoring the winner, but. He's got a skill set that you can really use in the right situations. Well, and I think that's what good coaches do. Like, good coaches, like, I think of basketball and Greg Popovich with the Spurs. Like, he's known for taking players and just putting them in their box. Like, not asking them to do anything that they're not good at. Just asking them to do, if you're a good three-point shooter, shoot threes. And I think Babcock does the same. And I think another good example, and this will be our second Babcock, Bab Sox, Babcock quote of the day <laughs> Is about okay. Jake Gardner. Like when you just let Jake Gardner be Jake Gardner, he will be a good player. But if you ask Jake Gardner to try to be Roman Polak, which he they, will be a bad did. player, which they basically did. Yeah. So let's hear Mike Babcock talking a little bit about uh, Jake Gardner on the second Bab Sox Babcock quote of the day. That is a tongue twister. Yeah, you created it. Shit. Yeah, I don't know. Just Jake is, you know, he's obviously spent some time in the league, and you see a lot of time with defensemen. It takes some time. It's a hard league. And Jake's uh, got elite hockey sense, can skate and pass and think the game real well. Um, he does some things. Sometimes you don't know what he's doing, but it has a way to work out for Jake. And so he's he's been a real effective player for us, can play a ton of minutes, and he makes good plays, and he's plus all the time. So, James, go ahead. Like, What is your response to so this? So the, the funny thing, Epcock has said this, a version of this multiple times now in this week. He has said something along the lines of, we're not really sure what Gardner's doing sometimes. 
but he does it, and you know, in general, he's a good player. I don't think he knows what he's doing sometimes. Yeah. The he's, thing is, he has the puck Jake, so much. Jake he, kind of has like a serenity now. He, like it's like his mind is always clear or something. <laughs> like he just doesn't. I don't think he overthinks life at all. Like he, yeah. he, you get really funny when you you have really funny conversations with him. I'm sure you've had some. Like sure. he, I don't know. I, I, he's a he's a he's a funny guy, and I think he drives coaches insane because you talk to him and you have weird conversations. And then he's on the ice and he's doing weird things. And sometimes it goes badly for him. But most of the time he's doing – he's been so good in this series. Like, hasn't he – he's just – he's got the he tough looks- matchups. And he's just – there was a play I was watching the game last night and Matt Hunwick got the puck down low and the Leafs needed to break out and everybody else was up ice. And all Matt Hunwick did is he just looked for Gardner and gave him the puck behind the net. And then Gardner was looking over the net, like looking up, craning his neck and looking up high. And he just looked like a quarterback or something. He looked like someone who he had full control of the entire ice surface. Yeah. And I think Washington's had a really hard time with Gardner because they don't know what the F he's going to do. They don't know if he's going to skate and break it all the way down. They don't know if he's going to pinch down low. Sometimes he's down behind their net. Yeah. They don't know if he's going to pass the puck. He's got just a lot of different weapons. Well, and he never seems to get tired. Like that double overtime game, the only players that were really skating well, I was talking to... Uh, uh, Jim Ralph about this. I met, saw him outside the rink after, um, and the thing that I said that it looked like Gardner was the only one skating, and 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 Jim said, well, Kuznetsov too was the. So it looked like those were the only two guys that were like a level above in terms mm-hmm. of their ability, and those those wheels are just so important with the way that the NHL is right now. Well, because he can get himself out of trouble easy. He's, he's a, a really good, good puck handler too. He's good. Well, and he's pretty good under pressure. Like sometimes he makes like. Like you said, the, the the odd decision, but Ron Wilson always used to say uh, with Gardner that he was a really efficient skater. Like he kind of glides. It's a Niedermeyer like. Yeah, like so he's never exerting yeah. super. Like you watch Riley skate, and Riley's a terrific skater, but like it looks like he's exerting more effort to skate. That's a good but, idea. I should write about how Gardner learned to skate. It's or, weird. I wonder if it's just born. He's just born with it. Yeah, watch him do it. Like he does. His skates are. He kind of has these. He glides, basically. Yeah. Well, glides. I watched Scott Niedermeyer play junior hockey in Kamloops and watched him all the way up, and it was Gardner's just a, such a beautiful skater. Niedermeyer's smoother. Yeah. But Gardner... Niedermeyer was like he was sitting in a chair almost and would like... Yeah. <laughs> and it was like sliding around the ice. I think Babcock would consider it sacrilege that we're talking about We're just talking about really good, smooth skaters. Sure. It's... Well, I was saying this to you the other day when I think we were in the press box in Washington, how... If you took all the numbers off the guys' jerseys, we could tell who a lot of them are just by, yeah. even from way up high, based on their skating stance and stride when you've watched them enough. Yeah. Like, I could tell you what who Kadri is and who Gardner is and who, who even if, you know, they were wearing masks over their face, if you just watched them skate around, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. True. There's a very, like, individual, uh, I don't know, snowflake el- element to a guy skating a bit str- like stride and everything okay before we wrap let's talk a little bit about one of the guys we just mentioned uh riley um you and i were chatting about it in the press box the other day uh it's almost like the the difference in his role now has made him better yeah why do you think so you didn't read my piece that's my after game, after have, game three my piece gets into that so riley I haven't had time yet. yeah that's i know there's a lot going on but i spent about 10 minutes it wasn't just me, but there were some other people there as well. But I spent some time talking to Riley about his role changing. And what he said was, you know what, the coaching staff didn't come talk to him about it. He said it just happened one day. 
and he's been trying to adapt to it and he's feeling more and more comfortable. I think one of the most, two of the most interesting things about his role changing is that easier matchups, mm-hmm. easier zone starts, and I, what I think is the most important is he's playing with the Matthews line a lot more than he was before. When he was getting those tough matchups, he was playing a lot uh, left side with Zaitsev on the right side. Zaitsev is not a great possession player. He's not elite at that. Um, so if you put those two out with the cadre unit, you're probably going to be spending a lot more time in your own end. Mm-hmm. Riley's probably the his best asset is... He skates. Right. And I, I like the way the decision-making he has in the offensive zone, too. And I think if you... Com- and in the neutral zone. If you combine him with Matthews and Nylander, and in, in this series, when he's been on the ice with Matthews, their possession is 64%. During the season when Riley was on the ice with Matthews, it was 57%. It's one of the highest forward-plus defenseman combinations on the team. Mm. They only used it, I think Riley only had about 28% of his ice time with Matthews during the season. Now it's, it's uh, I think it's about 10% higher. It but makes for, sense. But for Matthews, he's playing about half of his ice time now with Riley on the ice with him. Mm. And I think it's a good fit, especially with Riley playing the right side. Because when he's on the right side, he's got Nylander up the boards that he can work with. He's got Matthews in the middle that he can work with. He's got two great players to pass the puck to coming out of his zone. Well, and he's really good at joining the rush, too. Yes. And so those guys, if he joins the rush with those two, like that's a pretty dangerous Like 64% when you've got Matthews and Riley on the ice, I think that speaks volumes. But and the other reverberation from that is Gardner playing against harder players and still succeeding. Right. And that kind of shows you what you and I have talked about for a while, that maybe Gardner is just a bit better. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. And people that, people not, hate I know, saying that. I don't, like, but that's that's fine. They can they can. Numbers-wise, it's indisputable that Gardner is better. They're, like, it's very difficult to find numbers that show But the one silver Riley's lining in that better. is that Riley has spent more time against better players. Yes. But the differences are so... Yeah. Big? Maybe he's just better. Like, Gardner's results are better on the power play. I'm pretty sure his results are better on the penalty kill, even though he doesn't kill penalties, really. He doesn't kill them at all. Yeah. Marin- which is another Marin- really, guy. Which is another really interesting thing that Babcock does, is he, he like, designates specific roles for every guy. Right. So, like, Marinchin, you mentioned him. He played the entire two-minute five-on-three. He loves Marinchin on the penalty kill. Loves he, like he, he, he Well, no he, Polak, so. Yeah, but... Babcock basically said, I think it was in Washington, that Marincin is such a good penalty killer, but he's he needs to be good enough to be in the lineup to kill penalties. Like almost like if he could just use him on the penalty kill for like four minutes a game, he totally would do it. Yeah. And yeah, I was watching Marincin closely in Game Three on the penalty kill, what he was doing, and he's not like hyper aggressive. He kind of he's just stands. so long though. Yeah, that's he's, kind of how I play hockey. <laughs> but it's like the same thing. You're both really tall. Yeah. You could, you've got really good reach. My stick That's is That's really huge. helpful on a penalty kill. My stick is like 65 inches long You had something. the best comparison when you wrote a story about him a few years ago when you called him like a flamingo, I think. Exotic bird. Exotic bird. I don't know why I was thinking flamingo, but same, same thing. Same, same, yeah. same thing. But like that's kind of how he is. Yeah. And so on a penalty kill... It's like he's standing... You talk about skiing strides. It's like he's standing on top of the ice. And he's kind of just like... Like he's got like two bricks on his feet and... Well, know. no, I wouldn't say bricks. It's almost like he's he's really light. He's like floating around. Yeah. I, t- I talked to Dallas Aikens about Marinchin. And he said he always wanted him to get stronger. And he could see really see the potential there. And they just had a really hard time kind of getting through to him. He's and, not great under pressure. No. Like when, when they're 
forwards coming at him, he makes some not good decisions with the puck. Oh, I see what you're saying. When he doesn't have the puck and forwards are coming at him and they have the puck, he makes good decisions. Yeah, but that's he, he he's that's always in the battle. So the, the, my favorite thing about that story I did on Marincin last year is the headline. The headline was the Leafs player who gets in the way because that his skill is he's just big and Long. and he's a pretty good skater in terms of being able to move around the ice. Like he's not super slow. He also doesn't seem super confident. No, he's not. And I think that hurts. He's not confident, like, trying to have a conversation with him. Well, I think part of that's the English barrier. I don't think he speaks great English. Right. But, all right. I think we have to wrap. Yeah, I got to go get uh, Myrtle Jr. at daycare. So maybe we'll, we'll try to do this again in Washington, another road edition. Yes. Okay. But we can't bring this amazing mic to Washington. Yeah, we have to bring the sucky one. Well, I, no one complained about the sound last time. Well, I'm sure you'll hear about it now. All right, so we'll be back hopefully after game four. Uh... The podcast is always brought to you by Babsox. Visit babsox.ca. Thanks for tuning in to the Leaf Report. Follow the guys on Twitter at Jonas Siegel and at Myrtle. Now here is